Hi, it's Leon Dolan, and my new book, The Marriage Sabbatical, is out now and available everywhere. People Magazine chose it as an April pick of the month, one of the best this week, a hopeful take on commitment, they said, and an innovative story about marriage. Mmm, sounds juicy. The Marriage Sabbatical, out now, available everywhere. We are the Satellite Sisters. Welcome to the show. I'm Liz Dolan. I'm in Santa Monica, California, where it's like a million degrees here. I don't know. You're probably going to see this on tonight's uh, uh, World Series uh, debut, but good luck tonight in that Chavez ravine. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. The Astros like it hot, Liz. You know, they're from Houston. You know, yeah, that's true. Okay, that's my sister Julie Dolan. You're in Dallas, Texas, but you were in Brooklyn on an Urban Nana assignment, right? Yes, I was, but I'm back here in Dallas, and I have to say I am decorating my Halloween tree. Yes, that's right. Okay, (laughs) I was shamed into not getting into the decorating spirit by the Satellite Sisterhood, but guess what? It's It's now I'm going overboard. A Halloween tree. That's right. You can, you can get one. If you don't have one, they have them at Target. Six to nine foot trees decorated with Halloween kind of stuff, all orange and Halloween merchandise like lace, copper pumpkins and plastic spooky piano uh, piano figures. You can get it all on <laughs> Yeah, there. That feels like a bridge too far for me. It's one thing to embrace Halloween, but the melding of the holidays is not something that I'm for. No, I think it's just silly and fun. Do you realize this year there's going to be an 8% increase in the amount of money spent on Halloween decorations? And I think it's 100% attributable to the Satellite Sister hood because they <laughs> they they're on this 9.1 billion dollars is being spent on halloween decorations candies and costumes okay okay so, well, well and the latest it, thing is Leon, this is totally up your alley a mm. halloween uh, uh, a halloween tree go take take a look at treetopia Leon. you know what they, I, I can't believe you said that because i was actually on treetopia this week uh yeah i was looking at it <laughs> For different reasons. I, because my son is graduating in December and we're having, you know, an open house here after. And the the symbol of his college is just a simple orange dot. So I thought, oh, how fun would it be to decorate the Christmas tree with just orange balls? But I didn't even think there were orange Christmas decorations. Who does that? So that's when I discovered the whole world of Halloween tree decorations. In fact, Julie... I almost ordered an orange tree this week. So I, okay. I knew you'd be in on it. Liz, come on, come on, get yourself okay. an Halloween tree. Okay. All right. Well, Liam, that's good for you. You're in Pasadena, but you, you normally do up a big Halloween thing at your house, but you've got your dance performance that number that night, right? You're it doing is. Your it's, it was kind of, it was really a tough choice for me. Stay home and be the witch and give out the candy, which I absolutely love. Decorate the house like the witch's house. I dress up like a witch. Um, or perform thriller at another person's house. I chose the thriller because I thought that's a life goal. You know, I'll do it once. <laughs> and so I asked my husband, are you? Hopefully. Yeah. Are, I said, can you? <laughs> hey, come on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lynn. I asked my husband, I was like, are you willing to, to hand out the candy? He goes, well, I'll do it, but I'm not enthusiastic. So... <laughs> I'm just you hear that, kids? You hear that? They just want the candy. They just want the candy. You may want to skip Leanne's house this year. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, I so I'm even going to decorate modestly because I don't want the anti- the expectations to be high, and then my husband to open the door. So, um, all right, but the here's Grinch what we who stole Halloween. Yeah, okay. <laughs> here's what we have on the show uh, today, Julie. We are going to get an Urban Nana report. You were in Brooklyn, so we're going to hear oh. all about that. I have some. I just have some good news. News. I have a fantastic story, uh, Julie, about a college in Dallas that completely turned around their whole mission, and I want you to check it out. So I'm going to tell you about okay. that. More to learn from the Danes about happiness. More to learn. Uh, we have a pep talk. We had a request for a pep talk. So Caitlin, stay tuned. We're coming at you with the pep talk. Um, we also are going to cover the just snowballing accusations of sexual harassment. I think it's fair to say the floodgates have opened. Um, it feels because, that way. Yeah, it does feel. We are sick and tired, and we're not going to take it anymore. Um, but first, Liz, you had the opportunity, seriously out of the blue, to interview Joe Biden this week, Vice President mm-hmm. Biden. What, what was that? How did that come about? <laughs> Liz, yes. can I ask one question? When you went to Oprah's bu- brunch, did you know you were going to be spending the following weekend with Joe Biden? Did you I know did, that? I did not know that, Julie. I, this came, this did, did come as a surprise to me. I have posted several fuzzy photos on our Facebook page and our Facebook group of me on stage with Vice President Joe Biden on Sunday night. But here's how it happened. There's this thing here in the Southland, as they call it, uh, around L.A. called the Distinguished Speaker Series. And when we all worked for a when we worked for ABC, our local station was KABC and KABC was the sponsor of the series. So they would always call upon hosts of the show there to um, uh, to do the to emcee these various things when the speakers come in. So the speaker series this year, they have Joe Biden, but next up is Bill Nye, then Ted Koppel, then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So, you know, super high-end kind of thing. Anyway, there's a different radio station sponsoring it now. And apparently the person who was going to do the Sunday night gig in Beverly, in Beverly Hills um, got rejected by the Veeps people. <laughs> that's, that's wow. Like, really? Mm, yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they just want to make sure it's someone who isn't coming in with a particular political axe to grind. Right. Because okay. it's not it's not supposed to be that kind of thing. And so last Wednesday, you know, when I was staycationing in Silver Lake, the, <laughs> remember last week I wasn't home. I was uh, like I was a fumigation refugee across town. And uh, the Distinguished Speaker Series is run by these two sisters, another reason I love them. Uh, and they called me like twice within 10 minutes last Wednesday. And I thought, oh, this must be important. Anyway, they wanted me to be the last minute fill in on Sunday night to host Vice President Biden. And your job as the host is to do the introduction. And then the speaker speaks, usually 30, 45 minutes or whatever. And then you conduct the Q&A. The I mean, the assumption is that the Q's and A's, well, the Q's are coming from the cards that the audience sends in. You know, they're all out there writing out their questions. And theoretically, I'm supposed to ask their questions. In, but, pra- in practice, I find that my questions are better. But I- <laughs> <laughs> we all know that. Anytime we go to those speaker series and they have those piles of card, uh, cards yeah. questions, we know they're really already uh, pre 
pre-written questions. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, so here's what I did. So anyway, so the day of this was Sunday. I thought, well, I'll do I need to do some prep on Vice President Biden, you know, make sure the introduction is correct and thorough and interesting. So I was Googling around on Joe Biden and I, I read something that I hadn't heard before, which is he now has a thing that he does on Alexa called Biden's Briefings. And he does like a daily curated, as they say, curated list of what he's reading, like what's in the news that he's reading. So I thought, oh, let me try this out. So I do have one of those dots or echoes or whatever they are. Anyway, so it's in my kitchen. I go into my kitchen. I'm like, Alexa, play Biden's daily briefing. And I get something wildly different than that. And I try this like 10 times, I swear. (laughs) Like every time I ask, okay, how about... Joe Biden reads the news. Nope, that didn't work. Uh, (laughs) A Biden podcast. So after about 10 tries, I gave up on that and I decided, okay, we won't be asking about that because that did not work at all. So that was a little bit of the prep. And then, um, of course, the most important thing is what do you wear? Because you're on stage and at one point you're like standing up at the podium, but then you're seated on stage with him. Always tricky to be sitting in one of those chairs, right? Yes, it is. Because you need the right length dress or skirt or whatever. And you know, last week I talked up the party dress that I bought to wear to Oprah's Uh brunch. And I just thought that was a little too much of a party and a little too short to be seated there, uh, like at a chair uh, across from the vice president. So I went to the, I have this blue knit um, sleeveless dress that goes to just below my knee that I actually wore on that TV appearance in Portland that I posted online. Oh, yes, yes, your arms looked excellent, Liz. Yeah, I know, I know you, uh, you really don't <laughs> usually go for sleeveless dresses. I don't. Uh, you like sleeves, yes. but uh, you, your arms look very strong. Even in yes. the fuzzy picture, I could tell. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so I decided Operation to go with Sea Turtle is really working out for the arms there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I decided to go with the sleeveless navy knit dress. It has a jacket that goes over it. And a, so that was in my closet. So I assumed the dress was also there. But then at the last minute, for the life of me, I could not find the dress. So this is like, I'm supposed to be leaving. I'm running around in my apartment. I'm, I'm in my bedroom closet. I'm in the closet in my second bedroom. I went down, I looked in my car, because you know, things right. sometimes just get stuck in my car. <laughs> There's a lot in Liz's car. <laughs> I thought maybe I picked it up from the cleaners, but never brought it upstairs from the car. Nope, nope, nope. So then I'm like, okay, I I guess I'm going to have to go with the party dress. At the last minute, I found it. I had a big stack of newspapers on a little (laughs) bench I have in my entryway. And under the pile of newspapers, I had clearly like taken it out of a suitcase and pulled (laughs) it up to go hang up, but left it there. So luckily there was the dress under the pile of newspapers. I threw it in the dryer for like a 10 minute air fluff. You know, that's the good thing about knits. So you can see how very professional this is on my end. You're so cool, Liz. So cool. Just hobnobbing with the superstars, you know, scrummaging for dresses under piles of newspapers. Good work. I know. I know. I just want people to understand the way my operation uh, runs. So anyway, so I go and it was at the Saban Theater in which is in the center of Beverly Hills, a beautiful old theater. And so it's a big audience. And I go in through the stage door uh, and my friend Mary came with me. 
Uh, Lee and I did invite you, but you were otherwise occupied. I was sorry about that. Yes, I had to go see Felicia Rashad in a very heavy play in which everyone dies but Felicia Rashad. So, <laughs> did she write the play? Did, is that no, the the playwright who wrote Moonlight wrote the play. It was a oh. brilliant play, very very heavy, very heavy. Okay, <laughs> well, so sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. I was I always felt bad. I didn't go see you interview the president, Bill Clinton, yeah. and I thought, well, here's my chance to make it up, the Veep. But I was busy. Okay, well. Luckily, uh, my friend Mary was available, so she met me at the stage door. We go in, and you're in the back in the green room, and the vice president had just arrived with his aides. He comes with a gaggle of people, and so, but he's out front, like, meeting and greeting the people that paid for the VIP reception, so I'm in the back in the green room, and and his aides say they want to um, take a look at my questions, and again, I'm not even supposed to have any questions, but luckily I do. <laughs> I'm supposed to be reading the audience questions, but I, you know, I like to be ready. And I thought through a few things. So I was like, oh, really? They're like, yeah, we just want to make sure, you know, they're appropriate. And I want to say like, um, okay, whatever, here you go. Uh, so I handed over my, I had like half a dozen key things that I wanted to ask about. And I got to say the only one that they asked me not to ask I actually thought it was my most provocative, interesting question, which is probably why they they took it off the list. But, Julie, I was channeling you. And, Mm -hmm. Leanne, I also know how close you are to people at the State Department and the work that you're constantly doing with the State Department. So the question they told me not to ask was, if Rex Tillerson called you today for career advice, what would you tell him to do? (laughs) Because I think I think it's an interesting moral dilemma. Right. For some of the people in the administration who are obviously struggling with having a different vision than the president does. And what do you do? And also, I know how much Joe Biden cares about the strength of the State Department. And uh, anyway, they said, "Eh, maybe not so much with that. So then he comes back. So then I'm sitting talking to him and, you know, he's talking about his dad, of course, and where he's just, oh, your name is Dolan. And my friend Mary's name is Duffy. He's like, oh, so we got the Duffy, the Dolan, the Biden, you know, all from the old country. You know, he's doing that whole thing. Yeah, He's so effective at that. It's so effective. He is like, he's like the career politician, you know, can really smooth with anyone. Right. Right. Super warm, just like warm, open guy. And then he said, no matter what my aides told you, you can ask me anything. Really. I'm ready. I'm ready to answer anything. So, so that's good. So, um, okay. So we're back there a little bit. Then we get ready to go out and they, the, the women that run the series introduce me and then I introduce him and yeah, but you wrote his introduction. He didn't have a uh, an introduction. Had, he had an introduction that his aides sent me, and yeah. I kept about half of that. Yeah. And uh, I just tried to, you know, warm it up a little bit. It was a little bit like a Wikipedia entry. Yeah. And, you know, I, people know most of that stuff. So I tried to add a few more personal details, either from me or about him. For instance, Leon had sent me a text that I thought really lent itself well to showing that we understand the real Joe Biden's appeal. Leon, you had texted me that both of your sons had asked me to ask about what? Finger guns. <laughs> the signature Joe Biden finger guns. Yes. I mean, he is an internet sensation. Yeah. 
And so there was something in the line in the intro about uh, President Barack Obama, when he gave him the Medal of Distinction, called him the most consequential vice president uh, in United States history. So I added a line that he's also been the most uh, meme-friendly vice president in American history. Oh, good. And, <laughs> good line, yeah, everybody, everybody laughed at that. And I, I talked to him about the finger guns in advance backstage, Leanne, to oh. say... I, <laughs> That I wanted that, that I wanted that to be my last question. He's like, oh yeah. I said, how do you feel about being like a meme? He said, I think it's very funny. And so I was all excited to close with that because that seemed like a way, like, okay, the republic will still stand. Now let's we can all go home. Um, anyway, so he speaks and he told me backstage. He's like, I know I'm supposed to speak for. 45 minutes, but I would rather have more time for just Q&A with you. So I'm only going to speak for 25 minutes. So he must have, uh, you know, just immediately seen that you're a total pro at this list. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I I didn't know that it was that. I don't want to give my speech. I just want to talk to you. (laughs) Sounds good, Liz. Well, so then I do his intro. He comes out. uh, Then I go and I sit in the audience so I can actually watch the speech. And I set the timer on my iPhone so that I'll be ready because when it ends, I'm supposed to go back up on stage and, and take a seat. 25 minutes. 30 minutes, 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Finally, sometime well after 45 minutes, he he wrapped up. And uh, so I just think he uh, he has a lot to say. And the audience was very warm and he was very warm back. So he went on for longer than he anticipated. But generally what he talked about, um, he started by saying that he thinks we are in a battle for the soul of the nation. Hmm. And that what is hard for someone like him is that we also have an agreement in the United States that we have one administration at a time. So you have to let the president be the president and and the vice president be the vice president. And just because you're former something does not mean that you can be out publicly undermining the current administration. However, he did have a few things to say about things that he felt were beyond the pale, uh, particularly Charlottesville. Um, And he talked a lot about Charlottesville and how shocking it was to him that those Nazis in Charlottesville, that they don't even feel like they need to hide anymore, that we have come to a point where Nazis don't feel like they need to cover their face. They feel like they can come out from behind any screen. And he finds that to be a really alarming development in our public discourse. And, you know, I think most people would agree with that. Um, Then he did a long salute to John McCain. And he talked a lot about uh, sort of the way the Senate used to work versus the way it works now and his sadness about just how... um, politically fractured we are and uh you know and just what a dear friend john mccain has been to him his whole life even though they have fought like cats and dogs on the floor of the senate mm-hmm. and he had some he also had some very thoughtful you know stories about his early days in the senate i, I won't repeat them because i cannot do them justice but remember when he was elected to the senate it was like a couple of weeks after that that his um his wife and his daughter were killed in a car accident. Liz, yeah. listen, Lee, and I was an intern in Washington that winter. When really? He, that's right, when his, you know, and mm. he was like this young, dashing senator. And, you know, the love of his life is killed in a car accident. And, you know, he then became 
um, quite frankly, the most eligible bachelor in Washington. You know, this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, he just he he said just to give you a feeling for the way the Senate ran in those days. Mike Mansfield was the Senate Majority Leader. He was a Democrat. And he said, I, I didn't want to take my seat. I told them I was not going to be sworn in. I couldn't do it and that the governor should just appoint someone. And a number of very senior senators, Republicans and Democrats, kind of came to him and said, no, you have to do this. We, hmm. you, you were duly elected. We really want you to do this. So he said, one of the things that Mike Mansfield asked me to do, he said, just check in with me every Monday for an assignment. And um, he said, okay. And he said, I thought that every senator checked in with the Senate Majority Leader every Monday every or Tuesday, every Tuesday for their assignment. He said, believe me, I know now no senator ever checked in. <laughs> he said what they were really trying to do is just make sure I was OK. They just wow. wanted to check on yeah. me every week and make sure like that. I where did I need help? What was I doing? You know, just they wanted to like see me, touch me, feel me every week. And he said that was uh, he said, honestly, that's what got me through that phase of my life. And I'm not sure without all the, that kind of extra care from my colleagues on both sides of the aisle that I would have made it through uh, that phase of my life. So it was very interesting. And, you know, he gets very emotional when he talks about these things that he cares so deeply about. And that was a very emotional part of the speech. Um and then the other thing that he said more about like where we are now in America, he's like, people always talk about how divided we are as a nation. And he said, I, I see what you see, but I am optimistic because he said, we were much more divided as a nation. When I got out of law school in 1968, uh, the Vietnam War was going on. The women's movement was at the barricades. Environmentalism was being born. He said, think about 1968 and what we were like as a nation in 1968. And we got through that. So he said, we are not really divided ideologically because most Americans actually want the same thing. And it's pretty basic kind of common decency, middle class values kind of stuff. He said, we are not divided ideologically as much as we are divided politically, and we can do something about this. So that was kind of his big thought. And he ended on a slightly more partisan note by saying, yeah, and don't forget to vote in 2018 so we can take back the House. <laughs> <laughs> do you think he's going to run again? I'm sure people asked him that. Uh, well, I asked him that, Julie, because that was the perfect setup for my first question. Of course, that's what half the cards in the stack I got from the audience were people that wanted to know, was he going to run in 2020? And did he regret not running in 2016? So when he ended on that 2018 note, he sat down, ha, 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 hello, hello, and I said, started by saying, well, you mentioned 2018, but nobody, the only year people in this audience care about right now is 2020. So are you going to run in 2020? And he said, he said, honestly, I don't know. And then he went to a, through a long story about losing his son, Bo, and what that did to him. And remember when he decided not to run in 2016, he was very honest about that was why he was just so uh, devastated by the death of his son, he didn't think he could bring the full measure of all of his energy to running for president and that it's unfair to run if you're not ready to give everything you have. And he said, if you've ever lost anyone, you know, and I think we know this, 
you said if you've ever lost anyone, you know that, you know, year one is hard, but sometimes year two is even harder, mm-hmm. that there are parts of it that get harder as you go on, not easier. So I said, I really don't know whether I'll be ready to run mm-hmm. for president in 2020. He said, honestly, I'll tell you, I would love it if someone younger came along and I felt like they could do it. But if I don't see that, I would be open to it, but I just don't know. Wow. Well, that sounds more, you know, yeah, that that's not a like, no, I'm never I'm done with politics. I'm retired. You know, uh, to me, to me, it sounds like a yes. You know, it sounds like unless like if a sort of Barack Obama style lightning bolt came out of nowhere, you know, a, a candidate that nobody had ever really considered before, you know, he would not run in the face of that. But he looked pretty rested and ready to me. So that was that. okay, Liz. Breaking news. That's good. Good work. But he'll be seventy-seven. Yeah, I, I was. I, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, right. I mean, he's a pretty good seventy-seven. But yeah, I, I, you know, I'm sure he would love for there to be some totally dynamic younger candidate in his party. Yes. Uh, but he's not going to leave his party uh, without anyone. So, so we t- we started with that, and then. Um, I had a number of other questions. I, I had three foreign affairs questions, Julie, that I wanted to ask and sort of a lightning round of what do you think of these particular leaders? Oh, yeah. and by the way, his aides had told me before we started that he gives super long answers. So mm-hmm. you might only be able to get four questions in. So pick wisely. So in this foreign affairs lightning round, I wanted to ask him about Putin, Kim Jong-un, and Angela Merkel. And I told him that backstage in advance, that that's what I wanted to, I just wanted to get his take on these three people as leaders. So I asked him about Putin. I said, what do you think Putin really wants? And it was a super long answer, very thoughtful. Again, I'm not going to try to explain his entire perspective on this, except to say that Putin is trying to destabilize all of the Western democracies by driving them them apart, which means busting up the EU and busting up NATO. That was mm-hmm. short version of his answer. But he, he spent so long on that, and it was thoughtful and interesting that I thought, okay, no time for Kim Jong-un and Angela Merkel. Sorry, I went right on to domestic issues. And I asked him about um, about gun violence in America because I know he wrote the crime bill in 1994, and I know that that's an issue that he cares a lot about. So I asked him about, you know, from Sandy Hook, where people thought something would actually happen to Las Vegas, where there just seems to be this kind of defeatist attitude that we can't do anything about that. How did he feel about that? And he said he said he's very close still to all of the Sandy Hook parents and that, in fact, he was going to see them in a couple of weeks. And he talked about what that meant, just what a low moment that was. Yeah for the administration, for the nation, and to come away with nothing that felt like a fix or an advance at all. He got very emotional talking about that, and that was an extremely thoughtful answer. Yeah, it would be the fifth anniversary this December of Sandy Hook. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. That must be why he's going there. Mm -hmm. And then I also asked him about the the Violence Against Women Act, which is something that he wrote. Right. Uh, And uh, the whole, you know, you look at what is going on now 
And with this sort of, you know, as we were saying, just the snowball, like the dam has burst on all of these accusations of sexual harassment. And he talked a lot about the history of that. And whenever he talks about things, you know, he he talks not only about the sort of legislative history of things he did, but more about his dad. Of his course. dad. And I saw him speak at the State Department a couple of years ago. Yeah, he just talks about his dad all the time. Yeah, yeah. His dad always told him that the worst thing a man could ever do was lay a hand on a woman or a child. And he said that over and over again. And then he talked about just the cultural change since he was a kid where you would often see, you know, men sort of pushing their wives or there would be physical contact between husbands and wives that you would would never be acceptable now. And that kind of culture change. So. He talked for quite a long time on that. And what was interesting is that most of his answer was really about specific women that he's met along the way, who how they've been treated by men who abused them, but also how they had been treated by the judicial system and how stacked many of the laws were against women coming forward. Mm. And so, and he gave these three very, you know, moving but detailed sort of case histories about women that he knows. Now, me, and that was all very important, and I was paying attention, but I was also paying attention to the fact that clearly we were way out of time at this point. I have people in the wings, like, doing the circle motion, like, okay, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. So, and that was right after I asked that question about the Violence Against Women Act. And so he he was sitting next to me answering that question for a while. Then he got up and walked to the end of the stage and was really going back and forth, very animated, answering that question. I'm like, my God, how do I stop him now? They're like, and they're in like the Secret Service is like, we got to go. We got to get, come on, come on, wrap this thing up. Yeah. But it's such a like serious um, issue and he's giving such a thoughtful exposition of how he feels about it. You don't really just want to jump in in the middle and say, okay, thanks, thanks, Veep. We got to go. Yeah, your car's leaving. Uh, So, but I'm feeling the pressure now. So I thought, okay, what do I do? I don't want to interrupt him. So I stood up. I thought... And you tackled him? What do you want to show? No, I just stood up in front of my chair. He was at the edge of the stage. I thought maybe if he sees me out of the corner of his eyes standing up, he'll see, he'll get the message that, okay, let's let's bring it on home. Let's land this plane right now. And that that did not have any impact at all. There was Ooh. another Did you do a power pose? Did you <laughs> put your hands on your hips? No? Okay. I, I inched towards him a little bit but at a certain point like there was a rug under our chairs I'm like I can't step off the rug I belong on the rug he's like he's the former vice president he's he's at the edge of the stage he's just gonna have to like he will he will finish his answer and the world will be fine like who cares about the schedule at this point and I was noticing that nobody in the audience was leaving it's not like people were like okay we're 30 minutes over we gotta go got the babysitter no nobody had moved people were really wrapped so at a certain point ultimately he answers that question and then he turns around to come sit down again and he sees me standing there and he's like shocked like oh okay (laughs) And then then I just said, we have to leave it there, Mr. Vice President. Thank you very much for coming tonight. And we got a big standing O and it was it was really great. But as a result, I never got back to the finger gun. Oh, oh tragedy. It seemed he had he had ended on such a serious note yeah. that just seemed like it would have been totally wrong to go to the yeah. okay. 
That's pose is your favorite meme. Uh, yeah. So, so didn't do that. Liz, so, that is years of experience, Liz. Good work. <laughs> Good work. Segways, segways and pivots. It's one yeah. of your strengths, Liz. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, and he was just very thoughtful and it's just nice to hear someone who has a lot of knowledge of world history yeah. too, you know, cause it's, the world is super complicated and he knows that and he knows all of these people. So that was very interesting. Anyway, then we go backstage and we're back in his green room now and his, um, his niece comes in. And with a friend of hers. And he's like, Liz, this is my niece, uh, Caroline Biden, Caroline, Caroline, Caroline Biden. Um, and this is her friend. And so his niece introduced, oh, this is my friend, blah, blah, blah. Of course, I wasn't even listening to her name. And um, one of your strongest traits. That is one of my strongest traits is <laughs> never remembering anyone. But then he said the strangest thing is that when he introduced the, the friend of the niece, he said, um, she, did you know? that she is Kingman Brewster's granddaughter. And I thought, well, well, A, no, how would I know that? I don't know who she is. And B, there are only like one in a million people in the entire United States know who Kingman Brewster is. I happen to know that because he know. was the president of Yale yeah. University when we were growing up in Connecticut and both of our parents were from New Haven. So yes, I, I mean, okay, ra completely random <laughs> reference. Yeah, I happen to know who Kingman Brewster is, but most people you would ever say that to, they would be like, huh? <laughs> so, so then, so I mentioned our New Haven roots and uh, she, she of course went to college there, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm driving home and I'm thinking, why would he even say, oh, and you might not know. Cause how, yeah, of course I wouldn't know. She's just some stranger. So I go home and I Google Kingman Brewster's granddaughter and she is, Jordana Brewster, the actress from Fast and Furious. Oh, <laughs> so I think that's why Vice President Biden assumed that she, I mean, she was this big movie star and she's also in the TV show Lethal Weapon right now. He assumed I knew who she was at all. And I had no idea. So he, he thought it was an interesting tidbit about this famous movie star that she was also the granddaughter of Kingman Brewster. But because I had none of the initial info. I certainly didn't get why the Kingman Brewster angle was so fascinating to him. He and, was also and Jordana was not invited to Oprah's brunch. So no. there, there you have it. Right. Yes. So that, that would have been even better if you could have said at that moment, Oh, I saw you at Oprah's on Sunday. <laughs> well, clearly if she had been at Oprah's, I wouldn't have known who she was anyway. So it's possible she could have been there anyway. It was, so that was the whole event. It was, very fun to do. It's so interesting to meet people like that that are, you know, really have devoted their entire life to public service. Because you're right, Julie. On the one hand, there's like super practiced politicians. But on the other hand, only certain kinds of people really do devote their lives to public right, service. Right. And it's interesting to try to get a window into into what motivates them. So, and just that they can be a lot more reflective when they're not in office, you know, oh, in, yeah. in the middle of the battle. I mean, I think, you know, he, he can reflect on world events, world activities, leaders in a way that he might not have been, you know, free to do or, you know, he just has more space to do that. I think that it's very valuable. Yeah. yeah. 
And he said to me backstage before we went out, he's like, listen, I don't want to get down into the mosh pit. That was his. Okay. <laughs> like, we don't right, either. I, <laughs> my gosh. Exactly. Nobody does. Right. So we're all trying to get out of the mosh pit. Right. Uh, so I think he's trying to walk that fine line between being outspoken and not not playing the game that's currently being played with the level of our political discourse. So anyway, th- so that's my that's my report. It was uh, it was really uh, fascinating evening. I, I hope the audience appreciated it, but I certainly did. I it was I had a lot of fun doing it. OK, one more question for you, Liz. What are you doing this weekend? <laughs> Like, I don't know how you top this. Where are you going? <laughs> well, this weekend, I'm actually going to New York because at the very beginning of this year, this calendar year, like a bunch of my college friends and I, we all realized like the class of 79, we were all turning 60 this year at some point during the year. So we decided instead of dragging each other across the country multiple times for various birthday parties, we would just have one party together. At the end of the year. So that's what I'm doing on Saturday night, New York City, class of 79 birthday party. Sounds good. Okay, well, you're going to win. If someone says, what have you been up to lately? (laughs) That's right. I mean, you win. You win that question right off the bat. That's it. Just put your party dress on and tell your stories, Liz. (laughs) You'll be all set. Especially considering I'm retired, you know, so I've got time for these things now. I I know, Julie, I was texting, uh, Liz and I were texting about tickets and Barrick said, gosh, your sister is really, really hitting it out of the park with this retirement thing, huh? Oprah, <laughs> one week, divide the next. Yeah, most people just like go fishing or something, you know? Yeah, but bear in mind, in both cases, I was just a backup who happened to be available as a bring-along, you know? Yeah. It's not, so, yeah, I, I, it's the fact that I'm available that makes these things possible. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go to a break here, we want to talk just a little bit more about the snowballing effect, as we mentioned, of these sexual harassment, you know, charges or or not even charges, but just the story that won't seem to go away. Started with Harvey Weinstein. Then it enveloped film director James Toback. Today we see restaurateur John Bash, you know, also resigned today after after this. I mean, I don't use the word empowered a lot, but I would say women feel empowered. Don't you? Right. Over this, like they feel like someone is finally listening. And there's and a- disclosures, new disclosures from Fox News, new disclosures of fidelity investments today about sexual harassment. I just I think maybe for a long time, women, women were like, we can't win on this. You're right. never because we, we couldn't win because we couldn't win. We could, yeah. Right. We can't beat the man. You know, Gretchen Carlson, Fox News. She, you know, she went after Raj, Roger Ailes. We talked about her earlier on and she stood up and she did that. And it's like it has opened the flood floodgates. Yeah, but, it's amazing but, that that thirty-two million dollar settlement for Bill O'Reilly right. that, that was previously undisclosed. I mean, that is a shocking number. Uh, but I used to listen to that Lise Wheel on the radio with right. him and think, how does she put up with it? You know, it just is. But the one thing I've really noticed, though, I know that this probably is frightening to a lot of men that there is this kind of unleashing of accusations. And that they may be fearful, but in all of these cases, these are serial sexual harassers. You know, like the John Besh thing, the restaurateur in New Orleans, 25 current and former employees came forward. 25, you know, 
Bill Cosby is double digits. Bill O'Reilly is double digits. Harvey Weinstein is double digits. So James the- Toback is up to two hundred women now, according to a headline in the LA Times this morning, front page. Two hundred women. It's 200. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know, I know there are plenty of nice guys out there that think, Oh my god, you just say one wrong thing and they come after you. No, that, that is not what's happening here. Yeah. What's happening here is finally people are coming forward against these serial sexual harassers and serial sexual assaulters, uh, where they've been keeping it secret for so many years. It's just it really is pretty shocking. It is. Well, I'm I'm again just surprised and, and pleased that women are speaking up now. I mean, Me that's too. a, that's Me a lot to keep in for many years. So, and to feel like you're never going to be listened to. And like in the case of that John Besh restaurant group, they had no HR department. Like there was right. nowhere those women could go. You know, it's the same thing with the, you don't actually work for Harvey Weinstein if you have one meeting with him. So you yeah. just like, there was nowhere to go. And now at least they feel like, you know, my voice will be heard. It's excellent. Stay you know, lazy. that's interesting, Leon, because on my other podcast, I Hate My Boss, a lot of the questions about this, we did several episodes about sexual harassment. They did come from, from women that were in businesses that are not big corporations, but businesses mm-hmm. like restaurants where, yeah, there's no HR department. Right. There's really no place to turn or small family businesses where, yeah, you can't step forward and accuse someone uh, in management at a small local corporation about these kinds of things, unless you're really ready to be run out of town. So it is fascinating uh, to see that in a business like a restaurant business, this many women really did step forward. And, you know, kind of, I guess it's a it's a positive thing. And I you, you read in the paper, I think there are plenty of other stories that are probably going to break on this over the next weeks and months. Right now, it's like every day there's a new organization or, you know, a new person that's involved. So good. Yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> Hashtag stay noisy. We're for it. We're for it. We're for it. All right. Now we have to hear uh, a few. No, we don't have to. We're going to hear a few words from our sponsors. <laughs> We want to hear a We're few words from our sponsors. super psyched. We are super psyched <laughs> to give you a few words from our sponsors. We love this sponsor. Uh, we love all our sponsors. So, and then when we get back, Urban Nana, we're going to get your update. Yes. And there's a very special reason why you were there. Helping and I'm, and I'm your... going to explain that. It'll yes. be a nice recommendation for Satellite Sister listeners. Yes. Yes. And we have a lot more of the show. So stay with us. Another thing I wanted to remind people of is that our book, You're the Best, A Celebration of Friendship, is currently on sale at Amazon. So it's a really good time to stock up for the holiday season. You know, You're the Best is designed to be a gift from you to the Satellite Sisters in your life that, you know, pick you up and get you through. So whether you're going to holiday luncheons or Thanksgiving dinners or, you know, parties over Christmas, you probably are going to want to stock up on these. So with one third off at Amazon, now would be the perfect time. So just Amazon.com, go there, search on You're the Best by the Satellite Sisters. It's our gift to you, and it can be your gift to all of your Satellite Sisters. As Julie always says, it's so pretty, such a pretty cover, you don't have to wrap it. It's a book that's meant to look like a gift, so all you have to do is slap a bow on it. Rachel? Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I say tie a bow, not slap a bow. Right? But, but that's the right idea. That's the right idea. Okay. Hey, sisters, I'm just back from Brooklyn, and I have an urban Nana report for you. I got the call to go up. My daughter-in-law Lauren 
has a big work project going on. So she was going to be very busy. My son had to go on a business trip. So I got the call. Could I come up for like a long weekend, Thursday to Monday to help, you know, with the after school pickup and to take care of Josephine, who is now three years old, uh, while they were busy uh, working on things. So, I, of course, I said yes, packed up my bag, headed to Brooklyn. And Josephine's three now. So uh, as you you might know, three-year-olds are pretty good. They, they can, um, you know, they can, walk, they can walk, talk, put on her own clothes. She's, she's good with that. She knows a lot of her numbers, except 17, just for some reason doesn't like that number. She can count to 20. <laughs> she knows a lot of her letters. But what Josephine really knows is um, how to identify good parking spots. <laughs> I have never seen this in a child before. But we're strolling around in her stroller, and she'll say, stop, Nana. There's a good parking spot. Because <laughs> that is a New York City kid. This is a New York City thing. I think she spends time, because her parents have a car, but they don't park it in a garage. They park it on the street. And in New York and in Brooklyn, that means that you have to move it around a lot to find a good parking spot. So the child has spent a lot of time constantly driving around in this car looking for good parking spots. You know, there's been a lot of research about the zero to three age and brain development. I think this activity is really going to help with propel her into some of these advanced pre-K classes because she, she can find a good parking spot spot she can identify no parking signs she can't read yet but she knows a no parking sign versus a stop sign and how many times have you parked someplace and gotten a ticket and said i didn't even see the sign (laughs) josephine (laughs) Josephine can see the sign okay so uh other reports out of um brooklyn i just want you to know that i still walk faster than 96 percent of the people in brooklyn proud of you joel Yes, Proudy, I don't why know you're how so long slim. I can keep this up, Leanne, <laughs> but I certainly, I feel like I, you know, I have a good pace. I, I'm moving, I'm moving quickly. I think I'm aided by the fact that so many people are slow walking because they're watching full length movies on their phones or else they're in giant arguments talking to people on phones. And, you know, when you are screaming at someone, you generally have to slow down to speak so loudly. So that gives me some time to just move a little quicker. So um, also just wanted to mention, if you are planning to come to New York to run in the New York Marathon, you better pick up your pace. You better just kick it up a notch right now because we had some great weather over the weekend. There were a lot of people training for the marathon, and they are moving very, very fast. Like if you're, <laughs> out in Ohio, if you're out in Ohio and you think you can just jog, you know, or lope your way through that marathon, uh-uh. You, this is New York City. You got you got to move. These people are coming down the sidewalk at top speeds. Uh, so that is good. Um, I got some good reviews on the streets of Brooklyn this uh, this time. I was very happy. I was sitting on a bench outside a bagel shop after dropping Josephine at school on Friday. So I had an empty stroller, and uh, I was sitting on the bench next to Ames, who is an 18-month-old boy, and his mother. And Ames's mother uh, really liked my boots that I had on, Lee, and I had a <laughs> pair of a right. cute little boots on. Good. Uh, she was, yeah, and she said, "Hey, those are really cute boots." And she was trying to feed Ames a maple and bacon cream cheese bagel that had was egg and jalapeno. Now, I, I'm just, I, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that it was obviously 
too strong of a you know food combination for an 18 month old and Ames <laughs> didn't like his bagel mm-hmm. at all but mm-hmm. I'm very positive. I believe, as as my role as Urban Nana, that when I see young mothers with children, that I like to be as positive as possible. You know, I said Ames is so cute, and he was looking at trucks, and, oh, don't worry that he doesn't like the bagel and stuff like that. So I was feeling good, and as I got up to leave, she said, you know, you're a pretty hot na- Nana. I was like, well, thanks. <laughs> Hot Nana, wow. Hot Nana was feeling good. But then shortly after that, I'm walking down the sidewalk. Um, I have the empty stroller, and there are three uh, people from Amnesty International. They have their little uh, flip charts there, and they're they're doing a survey, or they're asking people on the street questions, and they just totally blow by me. They do not (laughs) ask me. But you're not their target audience? I, I guess apparently not. I'm invisible, Liz. I mean, there I was. Urban Nana in her hot boots, you know? No. Amnesty International. And I could have told them a few things if they had asked me that. Right. You have visited some countries with really horrendous human rights records. Uh, yes, yes. I have points of view on this. But no, none none of it, none of it. So that did not happen. Uh, uh, I have to say in general that I think the women in Brooklyn are getting fiercer looking in a good way. I mean, they're out there on the streets. They've got capes and boots and belts and they have so much hair and they always have like giant red lips. And, you know, they're just bringing it as they're coming down the street. And the men (laughs) seem to be shrinking. They're wearing like little sneakers and like little backpacks and they're on scooters and bicycles. And the the contrast is very, is very dramatic. It's very dramatic. That's an interesting cultural observation, Julie. Mm -hmm. I I only bring you the best. I only bring you the best that that, that is, um, that is, you know, that's what I see happening out there on the street. And then just one final thing um, that I, as I was leaving Ames's mother and, uh, uh, you know, when we were, we had had this very nice little conversation. Um, I have a new expression for you that I want you to try to, you know, just embed it in your daily routine. You know how you always say, like, have a nice day or have a good one when you're leaving people. Uh-huh. Well, Ames's mother said to me when I was leaving, she said, keep it tight. Keep it tight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Just like it, to- like a grown-up woman actually said that. That's yeah. interesting. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what it meant. Was she referring to something like in my posterior there, or what? I don't know. I don't know. But I liked it. I think so she just, had a little uh, crush on you, Ames's mom. Frankly, <laughs> I think she was yeah. hitting on you. <laughs> I, you think she was hitting on me? I don't. Maybe, I, I, don't I don't know. Deep yeah. and tight. I don't even know what that. Does that mean something? I don't think. I thought it just meant like. <laughs> Keep, yeah, keep yeah tight is what they tight is what the kids say for like cool. Something's cool. Uh-huh. What well, we would say cool, they say tight. Okay, but keep it tight. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where that's from. So well, okay. okay. It sounds like you were Julie. You were keeping okay, it tight. I, so just, that's so what matters. Just try it out. Just try it out when you're uh, when you go to the grocery store, Leanne. At the end of your interaction, just hey, keep it tight. Keep it. And I'll see what kind of reaction I get. If it's a look of horror, I'll report back. (laughs) Okay. Well, the other thing that I want to mention is one of the reasons I was there, and uh, this is clearly in the shameless promotion department, but my daughter-in-law, Lauren Hinkson, has a show that's opening at the Guggenheim Museum 
November 3rd. It's going to run at the, the uh, she's the curator of a show on Joseph Albers in Mexico. Now, Joseph Alberts, you may you probably would recognize his artwork. He um, he and his wife um, Annie were in the whole Bauhaus movement in Germany, and that they they fled to the United States when the Nazis shut down the Bauhaus. And the Bauhaus was an org was a German school of art and architecture and design. And Joseph and his wife Annie taught design he's taught design and she taught she was a textile art artist so they they came to the united states they got hooked up with the guggenheims okay they didn't speak any english but they had all this you know they had all this very nice artwork and so they got hooked up with the guggenheims and he ended up teaching at black mountain college and at yale university but what joseph albers and annie used to do is they took trips to mexico they went there you know, more than a dozen times. And they would go down to Mexico and they'd get themselves like a gasoline station map and they'd drive around and they'd look at all the beautiful, incredible pre-Columbian, you know, um, sites and statues and shrines and sanctuaries. And as part of the Guggenheim Collection's permanent museum, that Joseph Albers had taken all these beautiful black and white photographs of the pre, pre you know, these giant uh, architectural sites in Mexico. And they had just been kind of in, I don't know, some storeroom, like, or in, you know, however they're, um, they're however, in a warehouse. And it in was in the trunk of someone's car, you know, something like, like that. You know, like yeah. your car. And it was my daughter, <laughs> and it was my daughter-in-law, Lauren, that sort of you know, rediscovered these photographs. And, and so they have put together a show because it's now clear that these, that these shrines and these sanctuaries and pyramids really inspired the work that Joseph Albers did. And he has a lot of beautiful, like homage to a square. He did like 2000 of these prints in beautiful colors. There's probably one in, you know, your local museum because he printed a lot of them. And so they are excellent examples of contemporary art. So this show is about the photographs and, ha- and the, you know, uh, and the work that it inspired in it later in his life. And she has put it all together. And I think you're going to enjoy it. And there's a beautiful coffee table book too, that you should all get to that my daughter-in-law wrote. Okay. That is so impressive. Can I just say that is super impressive. It is. Uh, I mean, she has, Lauren is curating her own show at the Guggenheim. Right. That's amazing. She, she has worked on this uh, as hard as anyone can work for like two or three years uh, since the time that she, that, you know, that she rediscovered these photographs. She, you know, the Albers have their own foundation in Connecticut. She went out and met with them and to put together this whole idea of how these trips to Mexico inspired his sense of design and, and construction. So it should be, it should be great to see. And the show, as I said, is November 3rd through 18th. It's at the Guggenheim um, in New York. It's going to be on tour in Phoenix after that and possibly uh, another site as well. So, okay. So it's just, it's just up for two weeks. No, from November 3rd to February 18th. Oh, okay. Great. Okay. Did I say that right? That's good. So yeah, no, you, okay. Clear. We got to, cl- it's clear now. It's clear now. Great. Okay. All right. Wow. Well, That's you know, exciting. I was thinking about your daughter-in-law and your son this weekend, Julie, because there was a hilarious, well, a funny story in the New York Times uh, called A Rodin 
hiding in plain sight in a New Jersey suburb. And it's the story of a uh, a 22-year-old woman with an undergraduate degree in art history that answered a job to be a part-time archivist at like the town hall in Madison, New Jersey. And they wanted to, somebody to just make a list of the stuff that they had. And they have one particularly spectacular room with silver-plated chandeliers and oil portraits and an old wooden desk that belonged to Abraham Lincoln. But she was kind of walking around the room and she saw this statue over in the corner that wasn't labeled and nobody ever paid any attention to. So she went over and she sort of tipped it over and the markings on the white marble on the bottom were very faint. But she swore that it said a Rodin, like Auguste Rodin. (laughs) So she, she went into like months of investigating, searching archives. She called experts and Yes, it was confirmed that she actually actually found a bust that was an authentic work of Auguste Rodin in like the Madison, New Jersey town hall. So, <laughs> so good, good for you, art history majors. People tell you you'll never amount to anything. It's just not true. It's not true. <laughs> oh, I'm looking at a picture of her now, Liz. She's she looks just like Lauren, frankly. Yes. <laughs> her name is Mallory Mallory Mortellario. That's very nice, Mallory. Good job. Yeah, and it's a bust of um, it's a bust of Napoleon. Yeah, it's yep. cool. All right, good for her. What what does she get? Does she get anything from this? Or just I don't think she gets anything. Nope. Oh, think... that, that art art historians aren't looking for that, Leanne. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. But well, it's, actually, it's, it's a good it's item on your resume. Yeah. I would say if you if you want to be an art historian and you discovered a Rodin sculpture. That's a good thing to have. Yeah. All right. I'd like to apologize for my dog, who has been barking uh, for the last 20 minutes at the mailman. Um, <laughs> shut up. I think that <laughs> solved it. I think I fixed it. That is some, that is some dog training going yeah. on there, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> that statue's worth $4 bucks. That's a lot of money, that row down. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jewel, I have a feel-good story for you. I was uh, delighted in reading the new Real Simple magazine, this this issue. Of course, you know, when we get into the holiday season, I love these magazines. So the November 2017 issue has a bunch of good stories. One, I would recommend Janet Fitch, who's a wonderful writer, writes a story about her mom, the last days uh, with her mom with dementia. And they had a very troubled relationship before, but sort of the gift of dementia in terms of their relationship. And Janet Fitch, who wrote Paint It Black and other great books, she's a Los Angeles writer that I I am sort of friends with. I say, hi, Janet. And she goes, hi. And then she looks at my name tag. So uh, we're pretty close. <laughs> we're pretty close. Sounds <laughs> like it. But anyway, I want to recommend that essay. But Julie, the story I really want to recommend kind of caught my eye because I really like stories about urban farms. Like, I love this movement that people are growing their own vegetables or farms Absolutely. are taking over. I think it's a fantastic way to, like, you know, feed people and teach people about nutrition. And it's a good use of space. And I love seeing it. And my son's college has a giant farm, but they're in the middle of nowhere. So, of course, they have a huge organic farm. Uh, and But this one is a story about how a small college in Dallas completely reinvented themselves by turning their football field into a farm. The name of the college is a funny – yeah, Paul. That's very deep. I mean, it's that very is deep. Profound. Yeah, that does in, not in, sound in, very in Texan Texas. to me at all. 
to like exactly turn up your football field for a farm. Okay, that's very. That good. is yeah. exactly what they did. The name of the, it was a small school, the pa- Paul Quinn College, and okay. it was uh, traditionally an African American school. But they saw their by 2007, they saw their enrollment drop. They had no endowment. They were in deep financial trouble. So they brought on a guy as the president who had no academic experience. He was a lawyer. But I think he was like a pretty well-connected lawyer in Dallas. So in 2007, the first thing the lawyer did, he said, we got to cut the football program. I mean, they only had 400 kids and they had a million-dollar football program. So it's, I mean, really, that's Texas. That's, that's about right. That's about Texas proportions. But yeah. a, a lot of schools are struggling, small liberal arts yes. schools all over the country, good colleges that educated you know, a certain population, be it women or, you know, you know, this is an African-American college. They're struggling financially. So they cut the football team. And then a big real estate developer in Dallas was meeting with the head of the president, with the head of the college, Trammell Crow. That's one guy, not two guys. One guy, his name is Trammell Crow. And he said he was talking about they're in a pretty bad neighborhood. It's a food desert. There are no fresh sources of food. And he said, why don't you start a farm here in the college? Where could you do that? And the college president said, the football field. So they tore up the football field. In 10 years, they have completely reinvigorated the enrollment, the endowment. The farm has given the school a new mission. They are providing fruits and vegetables for the neighboring neighborhoods. They have a huge contract. One of the former football players at Paul Quinn College does all the concessions for Texas Stadium. So when he heard that they turned the football field into a farm, he's like, I got to go check this out. And now he buys all their produce. And so it's become, it's like the lifeblood of this college. And Julie, they've started a farmer's market for you. So I want you to go check it out. Okay. I will. Leanne, that's a feel good story. It I is. feel good about that. And I will check it, check it out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And it's just, it's filled with great pictures and great stories and good for them. And I love stories about this. So fantastic. Check that out. Okay, you know, we've we've tried to teach you about happiness the Danish way, haven't we? Hugi, uh-huh. we were on it, the coziness <laughs> right. and everything. And now it seems like every time you pick up the paper, there's another story about how the Danes are the happiest people in the world. Uh and I don't believe that. Okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. It's, what's your, what's I, your... it's, it's cold and dark there. I mean, because I lived in Russia, okay? That's pretty close to Denmark, to Denmark, okay? It's cold and dark for so many months a year. It's hard to believe those people are happy and perky. Well, I'm with you, Julie. I'm skeptical. But, well, apparently they are on all measures. It's on the cover of the you know, National Geographic. What we can learn from Costa Rica, Denmark, and Singapore, the most joyful places on the planet. So I'm reading all the articles, each country, and something stuck out at me. One thing I was like, oh, not so much. So, you know, Denmark, one of the reasons they're happy is because the government takes care of a lot of things for them. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. healthcare, education, there's a whole financial safety net. Not only can you go to university for free, the government gives you a stipend when you do that. Now, of course, it's the highest tax rate in the world. Okay, that's mm-hmm. actually the highest tax rate in the world. Uh, but you work hard, but on average, 40 hours a week. So in America, that seems like pretty easy job, 40 hours a week. <laughs> Most right. people Yeah, work it's a, a socialist system. Yes, right? it's a socialist yeah. system. But here, here's, they wouldn't say socialist, Julie. This is what I found disturbing. According to Jonathan Schwartz, who's an American anthropologist based in Copenhagen, Danish happiness is closely tied to their notion of trigad, trigad, trigad. Oh, we we okay. have to learn more Danish. More Danish, Les. 
the snuggled in, tucked in feeling that begins with a mother's love and extends to the relationship Danes have with their government. Oh, that's a bridge too far for me, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Live free or die, Leanne. That's I what I say. I know. If that's the cost I'm, of happiness. I'm busting out of that snuggly hug. Yeah, I'm I, telling you that. I, I'm trying to think of anyone in any government I would like to be snuggled next to. And it's only Justin Trudeau. And that's it. I don't. I don't want to be snuggled up next to anyone else. And so, so that's it. But here's another thing I thought was interesting. Uh, one of the reasons they say Danes are very happy is that, well, they interact socially a lot. Social interaction is very important to them. They spend a lot of time doing it, like hours and hours every day. And they said that 90% of Danes belong to a club or an association, from cold water swimmers to rabbit breeders. It doesn't matter. And that 40% volunteer for civic groups. So, uh, you know, we have the satellite sisterhood, so I feel like we have that beat. Like we have, we, we have a club, yeah. but 90% of Danes are part of a club. Whereas I, I think 90% of Americans think the last thing I want to do is become part of a club. So. <laughs> we, yeah, we have, we are individuals, right? <laughs> but we do believe here at Satellite Sisters that the sense of connection is the most important sense you have. Exactly. So, you know, I'm buying this research from a, you know, anthropological point of view. That makes sense. If yeah. people feel more connected right. to each other, they are happier. Yeah. So there you go. It was interesting to me that it's kind of, it's really codified there. Like people really believe in it and they spend hours and hours a day doing it. So, okay, there you go. So no, no thanks for the snuggled in, but I'm okay with the club joining. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Snuggled in. What is that? <laughs> All right. And then finally, last uh, week, we got, uh, I got a, a message on the Facebook page from Caitlin. Okay. And Caitlin said, uh, I need a pep talk, girls. Basically is what she said. She needs a pep talk, sisters. She's going through a lot right now. And a lot of what she's going through sounded really um, familiar to me mm-hmm. from previous parts of my life. Uh, she said she has four kids. One's applying to college. One's starting high school two middle-aged kids. She's caring for two aging parents, one with full dementia. She feels like she's working a job and a half in order, or she is working a job and a half in order to pay for college. And she and her husband are ships in the night. And she just Uh. asked, I know, a little pep talk. And you know what, Caitlin, it just really struck me because I feel like that's where I was five years ago. We were caring Mm -hmm. for our parents. One had dementia. I had a son applying to college. I had another who was starting high school who I paid no attention to. I barely saw my husband. And I didn't have those two extra kids in middle school, which is its own kind of personal hell. So I'm so sorry. So we're here to give you a little pip talk. You will get through this. But you're in a very, very tough part of your life. So I'm going to suggest a couple things. I don't like to tell people what to do. But sure you do. Sure you are, do. You, you love, yeah. These are things that it really helped me. And I, I know I talked about it on the show, but it's just a reminder. The first thing I did when I could see things were getting very dark with our dad who had Alzheimer's and we hadn't even anticipated that our mom would get sick. I got my, I took what I called a volunteer sabbatical. I got myself off all boards. I didn't do mm-hmm. any school volunteering. I didn't raise my hand for anything. And I didn't feel bad about it, Caitlin. You know, someone will step in and do that work. It was super nice not to have any obligations because, as you know, when you, you have kid, when you have someone who's sick, at any minute, you could have to take them to a doctor's appointment. So I never had to do that thing of getting out of something, finding someone to replace me. 
I didn't think twice about it. And a couple mm-hmm. years after we lost our parents, I was ready to go back in and volunteer again. But it was just a sabbatical, and it gave me a lot of peace of mind knowing I wasn't letting somebody else down. You know what? Someone yeah, else will yeah. do it. Someone else will do it. I mean, so clearing the decks a little bit yeah, on obligations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the second thing was I really thought about exercise as a method for stress relief. So if something was, I you know, I stopped going to those frantic you know, high impact classes I was going to and this and that, but I made sure that every day I walked with a trusted friend or I did yoga at just for stress relief. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, getting my cardio up. It didn't matter, but I needed some physical release for stress relief. So I just want to suggest that too. So, but you can do this. Do you have any suggestions, you guys? Well, I think the other thing you did, you know, which was really good, Leanne, is you sought, uh, you sought, uh, we sought uh, extra help, you know, that yeah. we asked people about uh, elder care. You know, this was a new, we, we just did not see this coming down the road, but you're the one in the family that organized, you know, that, that we talked to someone who knew a lot about elder care and that helped us a lot. Yeah, uh, so, it did. So yeah. to reach out, just as you did the, uh, this, keep listening to the show. That's what I would also say. I mean, that just, we love hearing from you and, you know, hopefully just listening to the show will provide you with some, um, some relief. But I would also say, you know, seek additional advice, you know, ask people for help. Right, right. And I know you have a child applying to college. I did too. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of good schools. <laughs> That's that's the answer. <laughs> They're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. I mean, I, I you know, I, I know I you just you really don't have to do anything. And if someone offers to help with that, fine. If the high school guidance counselor decides to step in, great. I remember the day after mom died, I had to take Brooks to a college appointment. He needed to get in one of his Cal State applications and literally, you know, mom died on Monday. This was Tuesday, and the counselor was so nice. He looked at me. He's like. What happened? I said, I just lost my mom. I couldn't even talk about it. Like I just, I said, I know we just have this on the books. We have to do this. He sat down. He did the application for us. People want to help because people know. That's what you should remember, Caitlin, that, you know, a lot of people have, have walked where you're walking now and we want to help. Yeah. And I would just say one thing about the power of friendship in these moments. I know we've written about it in You're the Best and other places. Like you can just really count on your friends at these times to sometimes be the alternative to talking about your problems too. Like I I had one friend who would say to me, you can tell me anything. I know you're going through all this stuff. I'm like, no, really. The last thing in the world, I talk to my brothers and sisters all day, every day about it. What I really need is to talk about something else, you know, and I had certain friends that were really great at providing that a little bit of light relief is really necessary in this time too. And that's what, uh, that's what friends are for. So they really do step up. If you tell them, you need to tell people what you need. Uh, but we're here for you. That's right. We're here for you. All right, Caitlin. Thanks for, thanks for writing us. We hope this was helpful and good luck. You can do this. You got it. Keep it tight, Caitlin. I think that's what it means. That's exactly what it means. Keep the dice. Okay. Uh, we got to wrap this show. This has gone do. on forever. Yeah. We're like Joe Biden. We're the Joe Biden of podcasts. 
Um, okay. So, Liz, you're going to NYC this week. NYC. Because, yeah, it's going to be fun. The, yeah. big, the big birth party. Julie, mm-hmm. you have to anything? Do anything? Yeah, I've got some country western in my future. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'll have a full report next week on it. What? Well, that's I have just... some country western <laughs> things going on. Okay, just, okay. just wow. go with it, Leanne. I didn't know. It's unexpected. Okay, unexpected. And Leanne, how about you? Now, you and Julie today, you have two recaps to oh do, right? Gosh. Oh, was we, have we have recaps. Oh, my gosh. It was emotional, Liz. We, we, yeah. we lost one of our best, Nadine. I know. I, it's I Julie's want... fault because she was on her last week about wearing sleeveless. <laughs> I know. Sleeveless. And you see her? She was in that sleeveless blouse at the I beginning know. of the episode. I know. I think it's your yep. fault. It's Julie's fault. It's Julie's <laughs> fault. B.B. Newworth left Madam Secretary. <laughs> right. We're going to do the Madam Secretary and the Dark recaps right after this. All right. Anything else? Well, remember, if you want to get those, that's now a separate feed. So go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to Satellite Sisters Talk TV. It doesn't come through on the Satellite Sisters feed anymore. But really, Caitlin... That's another mood lifter. I don't care if you watch these shows. <laughs> Listening to these recaps, I find, like, I've never watched Paul Dark in my whole life. I love the Paul Dark recaps, you guys. Yes. You're the best. You don't have to watch it this week, Liz, because it was so dark. You couldn't see anything. Couldn't on see the one TV shot. Set. There was nothing. It was just shadows moving across the screen. Smoky, dark shadows. <laughs> Couldn't see anything. <laughs> uh, okay, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sat Sisters, and the same on Instagram. We're going to renew our commitment to Instagram. We've been to, we've been talking about that behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, woo, yeah. sister. So uh, you know you're going to want to make sure you're following us over there. Okay. All right. We all good. Yeah, we're, we're good. good. All right. Don't forget, call your satellite sister.